0: Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. It's, a, it's really a treat to talk to uh, David Perrell. It's a kind of a change-up from the podcast you've heard lately with Neil deGrasse Tyson and uh, with Michio Kaku and uh, and other uh, luminaries of the astronomical variety. But uh, but today having David Perrell, who is an up-and-coming star building on our intrinsic capabilities and hopefully upgrading them, giving us a life 2.0, as past guest uh, Max Tegmark classifies life. Life 3.0, David, is artificial intelligence. And as Einstein said, I don't know what weapons will be used to fight World War III, but World War IV will be fought with sticks and stones. But, so I don't know what life 4.0 will be like, but you guys building a second brain, you and your partner Tiago Forte, I wanted to have you on, and I'm a big fan of your work and his work, and uh, I just wanted to showcase what you guys are doing for my audience. So welcome to the Into the Impossible podcast.
1: Thank you so much. It's a real honor to be here. It's kind of crazy how many guests you've had that I, of people I just really admire and look up to.
0: Yeah, of course I I became aware of your work. Um I don't really remember exactly how I found you, but those are serendipitous uh things that add delight and intrigue to the to life. Uh but my main motivation is sort of a personal one, which is to enhance um not only my brain but in so doing enhance my Brian And so I'm interested in building a second Brian. Uh, But before we get there, I think of what you do as providing the most critical skill that is also the least taught. And I'm saying that as a scientist, as someone who works with engineers, we have almost no training in how to write uh, for our audience, but certainly for a non-technical audience. And lately, my big crusade if you will, is, to, is that scientists have a moral obligation to explain what we do to the general public because you guys out there are paying my salary uh, via your taxes, assuming you pay your taxes. I know you do, David. I know you moved to Texas, uh, but nevertheless, uh, <laughs> you pay your taxes. Uh, so tell me, why is it the most important skill, and yet we teach it to almost nobody uh, in this field or almost any other field?
1: I agree. When I read scientific writing. The lack of writing education shows. It shows. It's not hard to see that writing isn't taught very well. I mean, just think about it, right? Like to the extent that scientists believe that they're doing important work, I believe that there's an actual moral obligation to learn how to write and to communicate things in ways that are easy to understand and clear and there's always some kind of trade-off between technical precision and the ability for people to understand what is being said. But, you know, one of the things that I think a lot about is, you know, it's a lot of people get upset with this and I understand why, but I think that these people provide a great service to the world. And those are the people who, like Bill Bryson, right? He goes out and takes a lot of, biological research or anthropological research. And it just writes this book on the body. And it's just magnificently written. It has stories. The writing is personal. It's observational. It's playful. It pops. And it then addresses the total addressable market for these important ideas. And I I really wish that more scientists were able to write well and communicate their ideas. And I think that those who do, such as David Deutsch comes to mind, are able to have a tremendous influence. You know, it's amazing. You mentioned Einstein earlier, his writing is quite clear. And something weird happened with 20th century literature, with 20th century philosophy, and with a lot of 20th century scientific writing. I mean, I go and I read uh, Descartes' Meditations last week, and it wasn't easy to read, but it's definitely easier to read than Modern Scientific Thinking, and that was written 400 years ago.
0: Yeah, I point out that Galileo Galilei, who was the first really popular science writer of any uh, renown, he wrote in uh, classic style, but also with modern twist to it. And so much so was he a uh, a wonderful kind of lyricist with his writing that he was able, through his writing, to discover new modalities of the human condition. I'll bring one to your attention right now, which I find so beautiful. And it's an example of something that you've spoken about at different times, but it's called the Dunning-Kruger effect which is yeah. basically the steepness of the learning curve is, uh, lulls one into a false sense of, of um, uh, undeserved arrogance. And what Galileo said 400 years ago in his dialogue on two universal systems, he said, uh, this vain presumption of understanding everything can have no other basis than never understanding anything. For anyone who had experienced just once the perfect understanding of one single thing And had truly tasted how knowledge is accomplished, would recognize that of the infinity of other truths, he understands nothing. And I think it's so beautiful to look at this man who was an incredible scientist. He had incredible foibles as well. He had, as we all do, uh, certain habits, certain uh, misdeeds and tendencies that led to his undoing. And maybe some of that could have been avoided if he weren't such a good writer. (laughs) Uh, Obviously, the dialogue got him into the ultimate home imprisonment in which he ended his final days. But um, if knowledge, this paradox of knowledge... Again, the topic you've addressed in your wonderful YouTube channel um, and, and Perel.com in and your writings uh, is something that you do every day. You write every day. And that's a habit of the greatest scientists in history, too. Maybe not writing, but doing some kind of experiment. And so I'd love to talk about, you know, your kind of approach to creativity and whether or not we can teach creativity and or imagination, as that's a big focus of my group and the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination. Can that be taught? Can you teach someone to be a good writer, or can you merely, mimic, you know, imitate uh, pr- uh, previous writers? Uh, uh, and, and what is the best way to teach uh, someone to develop their own voice?
1: Yeah. So creativity is something that can only be cultivated, but you can't just like snap your finger just come up with something creative but you can cultivate a life that does make you more creative and i use that terminology very deliberately a life that makes you more creative creativity isn't something that you just do and you sit down and it just emerges like creativity is a way of being and the reason why i write every day is because of this sort of paradox that i sense inside of the creative process which is on one hand it is true that history's great creatives have been very spiky in terms of their ability to have a piece of great output you know one of the things that i find to be very surprising is how many of the great novels how many of the great essays even my own essays that i'm pretty proud of were written in an extremely short amount of time Mm -hmm. and so people learn that, they see that and they say, oh, great. That means I only have to do creative work when I'm inspired. That means I don't need to show up <laughs> most of the days. And I say, you know what, that's actually not true because what you realize is that if you show up every single day, most days are actually just gonna be, be quite frustrating. But those days where you don't get much done, or like the price of admission for those breakthrough moments. And I actually kind of think of it like going to the gym. Like the most important days of going to the gym aren't the days where you're inspired to go lift heavy weights and break a sweat. The most important days are the days where you don't feel like going and you go anyway, and you leave and you're like, "Ah, that wasn't a great workout today. And it's actually the same thing with creativity because you never know when it's gonna come. And if you give yourself the space and the time to sit down and focus. You never know what's going to emerge. And there's this weird thing where most days feel like a total failure. You feel like you didn't get anything done and somehow, someway you look back at what you've achieved over months or years and you're like, wow, how did I do all that? And so once you start showing up every day, you have time on your side where then you're just putting little bets into the world and you look back and you're like, wow, I actually did something. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, it's funny you mentioned the kind of uh, length versus time. I think Voltaire said, if I had more time, I would have made it shorter, which is kind mm-hmm. of the paradox of creativity. And I know that you are also in training to become a private pilot. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, so I've been a pilot for Almost 30 years now. Uh, really? Yes. Yeah. I've flown. Uh, started off flying little tiny Cessnas and worked my way up, and and uh, have aspirations for even bigger hardware. As you know, it's an addiction. So once you tasted flight, so once, did you go
1: through. You get your. Did you go through. You get your instrument, and then oh, yes. you kept going.
0: Yes, I have nice. a commercial. I have a multi-engine. I even have a uh, what's called a type rating, which is to fly a specific jet, which I hope someday to be able to do. Uh, and that's a separate that's a separate rating. And I've started to work on becoming a flight instructor, and uh, that is in part to uh, work someday to teach my children. I've got several children; they're all interested in aviation. Uh, but I also uh, recognize the adage that I was taught the day I got my. Uh, my first, my private pilot's license, which was uh, that um, once you stop learning, you stop living. In other words, you're gonna mm-hmm. you're gonna start dying in a sense. And because we have to learn from the mistakes of others as a pilot, you, the saying is you won't live long enough to make all the mistakes yourself. Literally, um, <laughs> I, I wanted to become a teacher of, of flight instruction. Now I'm a professor at a top you know ten research university, and mm-hmm. I was never taught how to teach. No one ever sat me down taught me how to teach. I wrote a best-selling book. Uh, No one ever taught me how to write scientifically or write for the lay audience. Uh, And I think it's so scary. It's it's actually frightening because the FAA, as you're learning, is a government entity they have rules they have things your flight instructor had to learn what's called Maslow's hierarchy of needs and that is the needs that somebody um, is requiring in order to uh, flourish in life but also to teach somebody something they need to feel physically safe mentally emotionally they need to have their biological needs met Um, can you teach that I I always think it's funny because it's the only uh, branch of the U.S. government, like you can't go into the IRS uh, handbook for tax adjusters and find like your, your people need love, you know, <laughs> like it's, it's not in there, you know, like the person you're auditing needs to feel loved uh, again with the taxes. But, um, but in terms of teaching the teachers, you know, I guess a crisper way to say it is like, how did you learn to teach? And is that making you a better writer?
1: Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, I learned to teach by loathing school like i thought school like i actually think it's criminal in terms of just how hard it is on people like me who are have some kind of weird mental stuff going on in terms of like maybe some dyslexia just like wires getting crossed and stuff but in a way that is actually quite helpful for me in terms of being creative i also have so much energy and i just have a need to do things i have a need to be social i have can then I'm sort of over there and get really distracted easily, but then also have an ability to focus really intensely. And the thing that I always needed in life was basically just like, get away from me and just give me the resources and the tools to help me when I get stuck. But please just let me do things and let me go at my own speed. And it was really hard because in, like I remember in college, man, it was, I took a media arts and entertainment class my senior year of college. And during this class, during this class, I got recruited for my first job by the CEO of a major advertising agency in New York that when I went to go work there, we did about forty five million dollars a year in, in in revenue, right? So like we're a decent size. And he recruited me basically saying, "Oh my goodness, you're twenty one years old. I can't believe how what how well you understand this industry." And that happened at the same time that I got a C in my media arts and entertainment <laughs> class. And it was just because all of school moved both way too fast for me and way too slow for me. So if there were things that I was interested in, such as the way that Netflix and HBO were contending with traditional cable networks and how that was intersecting with YouTube, I was like, oh, my goodness, Brian, this is so interesting. But then there were other parts of this class that I just had no interest in whatsoever. And the inability and the actually lack of encouragement as a student to say, hey, you're interested in this thing. Go explore it. Go crazy. And the gift that I had was my dad. My dad, growing up, any single thing that I was passionate about, he was like, dude, just go for it. I mean, We lived in a family that didn't, like. we didn't do gifts, we didn't do birthday presents, we never really went out to dinner. We didn't really do many extravagant trips. I mean, when we did trips, they were really focused around learning. But the one thing that I was just totally spoiled with was if I wanted to learn something, I had, an unlimited, an unlimited budget of, my, of of money, which wasn't that expensive, but the thing that was the gift was my dad's time and energy and encouragement. Mm. And growing up for 18 years under that, whether it was aviation, whether it was baseball, whether it was golf, whether it was one time in 2006, I was in sixth grade, we had this project called the search, And basically you're just supposed to pick a question and go answer it, whatever. And so I'm like, no, this is not whatever. I'm gonna get really into something. So what I did was I asked a very simple question. How will the Boeing 787 fly? And the Boeing 787 wasn't supposed to come out till 2008, 2009. Mm -hmm. And this was 2006 when I wrote this. And my dad had known someone from the Schweitzer family and the Schweitzer family, they're behind one of the big glider companies. And I think that they were bought by Boeing or affiliated by Boeing. So, I mean, We fly up to Seattle, we go to the Boeing factory, I touch and feel the first ever (laughs) Boeing 787 airplane. I come longer than the average student. I end up getting more than a perfect score on this project. And this was from somebody who got terrible grades, who, I mean, I graduated from high school with a 2.8 GPA. I got roughly average grade, marks on the ACT and the SAT, the two standardized tests. I mean, I say with no hyperbole that I thought that I was going to be kind of a failure in life for the first 24 years of my life. Mm. But this one project, I got the second best grade in the class. I will (laughs) never forget my friend Alex, who did better than me. And I think that this just gets back to my main point about learning and about teaching. Like, what if for a certain kind of, human, and maybe it's 5% of the world, maybe it's 10%. I don't know. Somebody smarter than me can do the science. What if the idea of like curriculums and and going at a similar cadence in the whole class, maybe that's just totally wrong. Maybe certain people actually need to just be more unconstrained in what they're able to do. And the problem is that's a high variance strategy. If you do that, you're going to have some people who don't do anything, who just sit back and say, you know what? this isn't for me. I'm just not even going to try. And you're going to have other people who just go crazy. And the thing with most education policy that we're trying to do is lower the variance. We're trying to be ha- have more equal outcomes. And look, we can debate the merits of equality versus exceptionalism, as Eric Weinstein says, uh, excellence versus genius. But Fine, I'm happy to have that debate, but I think it's really important for us to acknowledge the trade-offs that we're making when we try to narrow the distribution of outcomes.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring up your, you know, high school, uh, you know, struggles that you had yesterday. As I mentioned, I talked to Neil deGrasse Tyson. And he, you know, he, did, he said he did well on the uh, SATs back in the day, um, but he didn't do, you know, phenomenally well on the verbal uh, component of it. And then about ten years ago, he got a letter in the mail from the Educational Testing Services, and he was like, "Oh no, they found, you know, they they think I cheated, or <laughs> I don't know, they they're they're coming to revoke my score, which was, you know it was good, but it wasn't great." And he opened it up, and it said, uh, "Dear Dr. Tyson, we're writing to ask you if it's uh, if we have your permission to use um, uh, some of the." the the prose from one of your books as an example for the upcoming SATs, you know, in the future. So basically it'd be like a writing sample and then people would, would analyze it, you know, for example. And he was like, I, I would react, what wow, you guys want to use losing the Nobel Prize? And he was like, F of you, like, you made my life a living hell, these standardized tests, and I didn't fit into all the boxes, and I had to work my ass off, and and now and eventually he gave them permission. But just hearing you talk about those struggles, but kind of the only clarity that you achieve in life is sometimes by looking at it in reverse. Um, and I'll get to questions I ask, you know, what would you advise uh, you know, your 20-year-old self? I mean, you're still so young, it's it's amazing how much you've accomplished in such a short time. Um, but I want to turn to your process because...
1: Wait, can I, I say one thing on yeah, that
0: real quick? of course. So two things.
1: The first is standardized tests are so tricky because... So I have a friend named Rob Henderson, and he grew up without... Uh, he, was, he was an orphan, and he, he he his parents were nowhere to be found growing up. And the reason that he ended up getting into Yale was because his standardized tests were so were yet such high marks. And so I think that the the sort of the subtlety of the standardized tests right now is something that we need to be a little bit more intelligent about as we talk about them societally. Mm-hmm. Because the thing is, standardized tests for people like myself and maybe Neil deGrasse Tyson just don't measure some sort of ineffable quality. That is absolutely true. Mm-hmm. But the problem is a lot of people say that and they're like, oh, it doesn't measure intelligence. Like, let's just ban standardized tests. And in another way, standardized testing is, as far as my read on the data, one of the most equitable tools that we have that allow allow people who don't come from traditional backgrounds to prove their, their merits and their intelligence. And I was reading about this last week and it seems like standardized tests tutoring and stuff actually isn't as effective as we think in terms of people's ability to get better. And so I do just want to say, although standardized tests didn't measure something for me, I do think that there are really good things about them. And I haven't like, I would like to see sort of more nuanced takes on things. The other thing with, um, with Neil deGrasse Tyson, he said something to me that was absolutely life-changing. So I got to interview him mm-hmm. in 2016. I just graduated from college. And I went in, into his office at the Museum of Natural History. And, you know, it's really cool because usually in life... Life-changing things. You don't know that they're going to change your life in the moment. Interviewing Neil deGrasse Tyson when you're 22 years old, you know it's going to be a life-changing day. And so you can, like, prepare for the day. And so I go and I go into his office and, you know, I, I interview him similar to how we're doing it but in person. And he said something to me. And he said, you know, I said, how do you communicate so eloquently? You're just a masterful speaker. And he goes, everything That I say in public is something that I've written down before. And I'm thinking to myself, there's no way that that's true. (laughs) I get that you speak eloquently, but there's no way. You talk all the time. How could it possibly be that it's something that you've written down before? And in retrospect, now that I've written every single day, you told me to write every single day. Now that I've done it for five years now, I know that that's true. Yeah. And if you look at Neil deGrasse Tyson's ability to speak well, a lot of that is a result of the diligence that he has to write consistently.
0: Yeah, and even more than that, I made the mistake of you know asking a question, which I knew the answer to, uh, but I wanted him to elucidate it in his uh, inimitable way. And I said, um, you know, in, in early in your life, you were encouraged more to pursue athleticism, um, but you, you, you know, you were able to succeed in academia <clears throat> uh, despite, you know, kind of the stereotyping of, you know, that he should go into a- a- athletics. And, you know, it was that just that self confidence that you had. Is that a byproduct of, of, you know, natural gifts that you had? And he said, wait a second, you know, like basically, you know, he said, I'm going to play the race card. <laughs> I was like, "Holy crap! What, what do you mean you're going to play the race card on me?" You know, um, and and he said, "You know, your that question assumes that I was if I'm born with something that I didn't also do a tremendous amount of work." And he went through this vignette, and you'll hear it on my podcast when it comes out next week. But he went through his his meticulous uh, preparation process when he goes on the Daily Show or Stephen Colbert or whatever. He wouldn't just, "Oh, I'm going to go and have a conversation." He would study. Past episodes. He would break down the statistics of how long between uh, questions does Stephen Colbert wait? How long uh, in time does he go back to reference past events so that Neil could have a strict amount of attention uh, to only the most relevant data? And therefore, it was a compression algorithm, and something I know you're very fond of discussing. But um, but it was interesting because I actually knew that he had done that because I had to use the Tyson technique, which I hope that my listeners will take advantage of, and your listeners, I'll, I'll send the video to your your team as well. But uh, but the point being that. Um, Nobody's born being a good public speaker as we already established, but the best ones work the hardest. And yeah. and it's and it's what I call this Tyson technique of treating everything, even as seemingly inconsequential as I'm talking, okay, it's not inconsequential to talk to millions of people on national TV, but you know, talking to a comedian as an astrophysicist of his genius, yeah. you know, it's it was it was very interesting to me to hear that he put such meticulous preparation so it's not a surprise to me, and I remember you telling that story on one of your podcasts about your encounter exactly. With
1: him, yeah. So yesterday, I um, I went to lunch with an actress, and you know, she was on House and in Once Upon a Time, and she was talking to me about what it was like, how she prepares, and so she's been helping her boyfriend, who's also an actor, on a new a new show that he's working on, and so they were filming in Vancouver, and they had fourteen days of quarantine. And she was like, every single day for those 14 days, we went through the script, we talked about exactly how we were gonna think about our, our facial expressions, our body movements, mm. what the script meant. And this was the key moment. It's what I call practice analytically, perform intuitively where what you do, and this is exactly what Neil deGrasse Tyson was doing, this is exactly what this actor was doing, you you begin to know the material and prepare so intensely that you, rather than knowing the ideas with your rational, conscious mind, you know them with your intuitive body awareness. And rather than thinking about something, and then doing that thing, the ideas work through you. And so I think what it means to really be prepared as a speaker is you kind of go over this mountain of complexity. Oliver Wendell Holmes said, for an idea on this side of complexity, I wouldn't wouldn't give you a fig. For an idea on the other side of complexity, I'd give you everything in the world. And so I think that what happens is we start off when we're just BSing something, we're intuitive in this weird way. And then we kind of get into this rational place where we're, we're trying to perform, but our, our minds are steering the ship. But then once again, we end up intuitively with, with, with excellence, which actually comes from the ideas working through you in a way that you're super prepared. And I suspect that that's what Neil deGrasse Tyson would would say he's doing
0: yeah um so talk about your uh kind of attention to detail which i do think comes from attention itself you've written extensively about your favorite scientific paper which is called driven by compression progress so good oh my goodness by Jürgen uh you're gonna have to help me juergen schmidenhuber i think at uh, cornell Uh, uh, Yes, although I guess he was at uh, Garshing when he wrote this paper. Um, What what do you make of attention, the attention economy? I'll I'll say one thing, and then I want to get your reaction. So Sam Harris has said that the most valuable commodity is not time, because time is fungible, in a sense. You can always, you know, not watch that cat video that is playing in the background, right? We have time to do things that are all sorts of wastefulness. Attention is another thing. Uh, when I'm playing with my kids and scrolling, you know, Instagram or um, uh, doing something else, uh, thinking, you know, I'm in a synagogue and I'm supposed to be thinking about God and these existential questions. And I'm like, I wonder how many emails, you know, are piling up. Uh, I want to ask you, do you agree with that statement that attention is? Because I actually believe there's another commodity even more precious and irretrievable trust. than attention. Say it again. I w- I'm going to guess trust. What is it? So for me, it's innocence. I believe innocence is a ratchet and pall, that it only goes in one direction. Once you have seen something, you can't unsee it. Once you've done something, you can't undo it. And sometimes you can use that to your advantage. As you said, like you're gonna do the work every day. It's like, you're gonna go to the gym. You're gonna write a thousand know, words a day. You're gonna do whatever it is. And so, you know, But it also can be negative. Once you commit adultery, I'm told, it's very easy to do it the second time. Once you commit a robbery, the first time is the hardest and so i've interviewed people you know david on my show that were you know war veterans and they they killed people you know it was it was their life or this enemy combatant's life and they killed them, and they oh. killed dozens of people and and he agreed with me he was like i can't undo it i'm glad i did it my kids would be orphaned you know or wouldn't have a father had i not done it but i cannot undo it and for me, that meant for my kids, I want to keep them as innocent as possible for as long as possible. And therefore, I think innocence is the most uh, precious commodity. And maybe that does have trust built into it because they have to trust you as a parent as well. And, uh, you know, I'm not expecting you to react necessarily to all of this, but in, in your estimation, attention seems to play a big deal in your life. So how do you choose what to spend your attention on? I agree it is a valuable commodity.
1: Yeah, so there's two cuts on this. There's attention in terms of where I place my own attention, and then Mm -hmm. there's attention in terms of the attention economy. Mm -hmm. So, just very simply, your life is sort of the sum of what you focus on. And it sounds trite, but I think it's true. And what, you know, it's like a chef. If you talk to a really good chef, they would say, there's no way I'm going to cook a world-class meal without world-class ingredients. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of my thinking and in terms of how I collect ideas and consume the world is high-quality inputs. You know, the, the really good Wagyu steak or freshly picked strawberries of information. And then there's the flip side of attention, which is the economy of attention. That is how you think about monetization on the internet. And attention is fine, but I don't think that attention really converts into meaningful outcomes without trust. And the thing is, you can buy attention. You can go on Facebook, Google, Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, all of which have billion-dollar marketing departments, and you can get people to look at whatever it is that you're selling, whoever it is that you are. You can buy that. The thing that you can't buy is trust. You can't buy relationships. And it's actually in the synthesis of trust and attention that I think magical outcomes via the internet happen.
0: Mm -hmm. And when I think about that uh, attention and sort of how computers can act as a second brain, I made this point actually to my children, you know, kind of building on what you and Tiago work on, this notion that you um, you have a very good wet supercomputer That's good for ideation, coming up with ideas and creativity and imagination, which a computer cannot do. You know, I always say people make so much, David, of the fact that computers can beat any human at chess. Computers can beat any human at Go. My whole thing is I don't care about AI, I don't care about artificial intelligence, I care about artificial wisdom. Can a computer create the game of chess? Can a computer come up with general relativity just given the laws of uh, Newtonian relativity? I don't think that they can, but my, my focus is on the second part that computers are very good at doing things that humans aren't so good at memorization, mm-hmm. storage, uh, compression, etc. So I think of, you know, this article on compression as sort of the hybrid, because if you can compress information, it allows you to store uh, fewer things to reproduce the whole. But of course, the definition of complexity, uh, something is more complex, the more bits of a computer program would be required to, uh, to fully explain it. Nowadays, we hear a lot about AI and I want to go into your thoughts about AI and how that could build a third brain, perhaps. Um, I'm working on a project now, the first time in human history, taking the words of Galileo, turning them into an audiobook uh, with the famous physicist Carlo Rovelli, and oh, others. cool. Yeah, so no one had ever done it. I was—I uh, uh, took on this project as part of a video I did for Prager University, which is called uh, Galileo's Dialogue. And I was like, I'm going to read this 539-page book in a in a month. I mean, I I could only get through a couple of pages of it when I was a kid. And I said, I'll just listen to the audiobook, because as you point out, you can listen at 2x speed. So that'll be great. And uh, Audible, where is the audiobook? There's not a single audiobook, David, of any of Galileo's books. There's nothing of Newton, uh, and who was a much worse writer in terms of public consumption. Principia is almost unreadable, even for a physicist. Mm-hmm. But Galileo, as I showed before, is beautiful. It's majestic. It's evocative. And so I said, This is a shame. I'm going to make the first audiobook of Galileo's in human history. And if that works, uh, we'll continue and do all of his books because eventually there'll be about two or three million words. The Galileo said that no one's ever heard uh, read by Italians. And then I said, "Well, why stop there? Why not dump that into GPT-3 and create artificial Galileo, Galileo, and and actually have him as an avatar and start to think about him. And I and I start to think, um, you know, maybe maybe this is not the first time this has ever been done. If we just take the second brain to its logical conclusion, eventually we get hyper advanced artificial intelligence." In which case, maybe I'm being simulated by this intelligent agent to produce what I think is a work of original thinking. And so I want to ask you, where is the next evolution of, before we get into your speculation on uh, general artificial intelligence and Turing machines and so forth, where are we going in terms of augmentation of the human brain? I want to turn Galileo into a teacher of physics, because he's a much better teacher of the you know inclined plane than I could ever be. So I want to make an artificial Galileo as a teacher, and that maybe could make some kind of impact on education. But where are we going? What's the next brain, if you will, uh, in this hierarchical system?
1: Well... I have no idea. So let me (laughs) speculate. I mean, I think that one of the most important choices you have to make in your career is, are you going to be more like computers or less like computers? And I think that that's a question to always be asking. And, you know, there's, there's ways that I see good arguments for both. You know, I think a lot of, at times, software developers and you know, want to be more like computers in terms of th- aligning how they think about the world with the way that a computer actually works. And to actually speak the language of a computer, you know, it's probably the highest leverage, one of the highest leverage things that you can do in society right now. Um, but even within that, you know, if you want to think more like a computer in terms of speaking their language, I think that you then want to differentiate yourself from computers and have A kind of division of labor where Mm. what you do is sort of like what you were saying. A computer can get really good at chess, but they can't invent chess. They can get really good at Go, but they can't invent Go. And get really good at thinking in open-ended ways and unbounded spaces. And that I don't actually know enough about the science of AGI to have a sense of how close that actually is and but at the same time i mean i just think about this all the time of how do you actually use technology instead of letting it use you how do you actually cooperate with technology instead of competing against it and i mean the way that i think of it is about aligning yourself with the internet basically of saying okay the internet basically basically What it gives us is, you know, Naval Ravikant says that there's all these little – the robots are already here. They just are working in data centers, and they're not just walking on the streets like like Asimov's Mm iRobot. And what that means to me very practically is that – take this podcast what's happening right now to everybody who's listening i think of like little minions who are like carrying the ones and zeros across the world maybe from indonesia to south africa to argentina to russia and these ones and zeros are traveling at the speed of light from my mouth into a microphone then through under underwater cables and then into somebody's ear it's absolutely incredible and I think it's what it means to be what I call a citizen of the internet, is to be somebody who is able to put the internet to work for you, instead of trying to run and compete against it, because guess what, computers, they don't sleep, they can work way faster than you'll ever be able to, but... There are certain things such as about creativity and just the humanity that I think we all crave that humans aren't able to do. And so I really i am always thinking about division of labor, asking what are computers really good at? How can I differentiate myself from computers? And in, in the partnership of man and machine, I think amazing things happen right now
0: yeah i agree so uh we'll look forward to the building the fourth brain we'll have to see how that comes along maybe galileo can teach writing and physics later on Um, i want to move to another topic that i kind of just gleaned from you and i refer people to both your course rite of passage uh your course with tiago called uh building a second brain and also your website, Perel.com, your Friday newsletter, your Monday newsletter. Uh, you don't write enough, David. You, you really, you're kind of slacking off here. I mean, there's, there's, there's five other of days of the week, man. Come on. <laughs> uh, but I subscribe. I read everyone thoroughly. I click on all the beautiful links. It's, it's a lovely presentation of art, technology, science, and, and wonderful writing. One thing you said caught my eye a couple months ago. You said, strive not for faint. And yet strive for niche fame. And you gave an example, which I love. Your writing is replete with examples, which is what the human brain, the wet one at least, needs in order to uh, construct analogies that allows for actionable um, uh, activity to take place. You said an example of, uh, of niche fame is being a professor. You know, someone who is, uh, you know, respected in uh, her or his field, uh, who can be, you know, relied on to give great keynote presentations and so forth. And I thought, you know, I have a proof that David's actually right, Uh, because you may not know this, but a fellow pilot and a fellow uh, uh, professor uh, was uh, was the man known as Neil Armstrong, arguably the most famous person in human history. uh, First human to walk on the surface of the moon. Well, what did he do? After he retired from NASA, just a few years after walking on the moon, he only went once, made that first step, lasted two hours on the moon, went home. So how do you come down from that? How do you not go crazy as some people did? And really off the deep end from that experience on the moon, he became a college professor. University of Cincinnati Mm -hmm. and I thought that was quite uh, you know quite a good proof text as we say in the Talmudic business uh, that that's actually true but maybe flesh that out a little bit Uh, the perils of fame are numerous I talked to Neil again as you uh, noted you know he's this amazing person with this huge gift that um, and he's got 14.5 million Twitter followers he told me during COVID when he's wearing a mask he is not anonymous he is not able to walk down the streets of Manhattan. He is not able to take the subway. He will not open his voice if he's in a crowd of more than a few people because his voice is so iconic. Um, flesh out that idea of niche fame a little bit. Not that I have you know too much to worry about, uh, but what are the you know kind of the downsides? You have 150,000 followers. You're not kind of the fame that will unless you walk by my house. You know people aren't going to recognize you. But um, but talk about that. The trade-offs with fame and internet fame in particular.
1: Yeah, so really just shook me was Tim Ferriss wrote an article, I think it was called 11 Reasons Not to Be Famous, and I was like, wow, I don't want to deal with any, any of these issues. <laughs> and it was really scary. It was just just a life-changing article for me. And the thing is that there's a lot of perks of being famous though. And so it's like, okay, how do we think about this? And what is a categorization and a distinction that we can draw between the kind of fame that we do want and the fame that we don't want? And look, I'm not saying that this will lead to zero bad things, but I'm saying it's a very different kind of fame that the internet has actually enabled. And I call it niche fame. So what celebrity fame is, is a lot of people know you you're covered in tabloids and it's just more 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 so you try to reach a mass audience and you're sort of known for your image and then look the lines aren't super clean so bear with me here it's just like you know it's a model right (laughs) some models are useful but none are accurate and the what niche fame is is you're known for your ideas. And rather than being well known, you're well respected. And the reason why I say that it's the fame of a college professor is that what a really good professor has is the ability to meet really anybody that they want to meet in terms of the people in their field. Other people are reaching out to them. Somebody will say, hey, I've been really influenced by your work. And so you're your ideas are actually going to work for you, and then they'll reach out to you. You have all this magical serendipity, but they can walk down the street and they can actually open their their mouths. They can take the subway in New York City. They can go out to eat, and they're not like mobbed and attacked by people because the average person has no idea who they are. And I think that what the internet has done is it has allowed many more people to be niche famous because now... What the Internet did was it democratized the means of creation and distribution of ideas. It's way easier to, you know, this is almost like producing a radio show, but we don't need to go to KNBR studios in downtown San Francisco to record this. You know, we can record it from the comfort of our homes, the comfort of of our offices. And then we don't need to distribute this over very tightly regulated airwaves where, you actually have to get permits to go and publish stuff on the radio. You can just sign up for a Libsyn account and you can publish a podcast. And because of that, the number of people who can be known for their ideas has expanded by an order of magnitude. And the Internet has a beautiful way of nicheifying things. And you can pick something that's quite narrow, like teaching writing or being really interested in physics or science and then you can focus on that thing that you want to be known for not just be totally unknown to the average person who you would see on the street and yet have thousands and thousands of people who are interested in your ideas reaching out and creating intellectual serendipity in your life and I think that that's a really nice way to live.
0: And that nichification, just to push back a little bit on on you, um, you have an extremely diverse uh, kind of uh, spectrum of talents. Uh, I call you the Liam Neeson Neeson of of the internet. You have a very... You know broad but a very particular set of skills that mm. the bad guys need not trifle with um, so are you not taking your own advice you're you're not very niche uh, a lot of what you're doing is is oh, broad you know you're doing videos you're doing exposes and uh, i mean exposes you're doing explorations of Peter Thiel on one hand and David Hilbert, the mathematician on another hand you're studying the assayer by Galileo and philosophy yeah. you're going but you're taking pilot uh, flying lessons. Um, are you needing to take some of the great David Perel's advice or, or are you able oh, to interesting. handle interesting. <laughs> interesting. So I think that there's a lot of ways to think
1: about niche because, look, on one hand, those things look entirely different. But to me, they're actually all the same thing. I only do one thing. I learn obsessively, collect ideas, have conversations. Mm-hmm and i'm driven by what i find to be interesting inspired by that paper driven by compression progress then i distill those experiences through writing through just and then i share those experiences and i do that through teaching i do that through podcast thing i do that through youtube videos i do that through writing essays sharing newsletters and really what it is is it's a celebration of learning it's going out trying to reject a lot of conventions in terms of how we should think and trying to find ideas that are in the peripheral vision of society that people are maybe missing and trying to find those things and just following my intuition kind of skip and dance as I learn and make sense of the world and then share that with other people. And so the only projects that I ever take on are projects that require a tremendous amount of intellectual curiosity where I have a team, but I I have space to sort of wander and sort of move at my own pace and just meander as I go to explore. Ones where I can be on the move and just be, create, and then share that with other people. and By doing that, build an audience. And so, yes, on one hand, I'm very sort of broad, but in terms of my skills, which is really just collecting ideas, synthesizing ideas, sharing ideas, and then building an audience through that celebration of learning, it's very specific and I do nothing else besides that.
0: Mm. Very nice. Well, I could talk all day. As I said, we're going to run out of time because I have to teach a bunch of undergraduates about the... What are you teaching? I'm teaching uh, introductory cosmology for advanced undergraduates, uh, majors in physics. So it's a lot of fun. It's what I do in my day job, building telescopes that see invisible radiation left over from the Big Bang. Uh, And so I get to teach the brightest luminaries in the cosmos uh, that will make the dent in the universe that we need to make progress. And, uh, David, we've come to the final three questions that I ask all my guests from nine Nobel Prize winners to three billionaires and to brilliant individuals such as yourself. And I would like to begin that process now if you're willing to go with me into the impossible. Let's do it. Okay, the first question is an easy one Can you provide a 16 dimensional unification of quantum mechanics with the electroweak force? No, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Give me a hard question. (laughs) All right, that'll be our next interview. It's so simple. You'll put it in the margin, as Fermat once said, right? Okay. First of all, this relates to our Judaic uh, connection. That I guess I first learned of you through Rabbi Wolpe. Your interview, wonderful interview with my friend Rabbi David Wolpe,
1: who I love. He did such a beautiful job on that interview. All credit to him.
0: That interview, yes, it was uh, far superior to the two interviews I've done with him, and it actually brought me to tears in certain parts. So I refer people to david's wow. podcast um it's a wonderful podcast what's the name again it's it's um the north star podcast. north star podcast i love the star i shouldn't have forgotten that polaris right yeah. um <clears throat> so i want to ask you when you reach the biblical age of 120 years old what mm-hmm. ethical will what zava as we say in hebrew what wisdom or values would you most want to communicate to those people that will become your ideological heirs Don't be so quick to dismiss ideas.
1: You know, Mm. what I love about philosophy is – I spend a lot of time with philosophers. And what I love about them is that they can entertain ideas that they disagree with, that they think are absolutely psycho. And they can entertain ideas and play with those ideas and then only make judgment decisions on those ideas later. And I think our society would be so much better if people – could wait to make value judgments on the merits of an idea and actually understand that idea and always ask, what if it's true? And if you do that, you will live a richer life mm. for yourself and I think the world will be a much better place.
0: That's beautiful, David. And concise, which I love. Uh, the next one is also related to the namesake of my center here, the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination. Arthur, mm-hmm. Sir Arthur was of course a great scientist, but also a great writer. And he, um, in 2001, A Space Odyssey, he has these monoliths that are kind of like time capsules meant to preserve some information from a long-deceased alien civilization. If, uh, if you were to be given a monolith that would last for a billion years, is there anything you would put on it or in it or about it? Uh, hopefully not like a CD-ROM or something. Something that will be immediately evident if one were to read it. It could be short or long.
1: I think I would put access to YouTube. I think YouTube is just, and I mean, this will, and I'm sort of assuming YouTube in terms of what it's going to become. I think video is the most democratic media, and the access that you have to anything that you could imagine on YouTube, I think will stand the test of time and it won't die with the years.
0: You should get to know my friend, Noah Kagan, if you don't know him. And uh, I also- ran
1: into him at uh, at breakfast two weeks ago.
0: <laughs> well, say hi next time you see him, although he's biking across the country right now. Last question yeah. for you, David, uh, has to do with going the opposite direction on the timeline going backwards in time. And it relates to Sir Arthur C. Clarke's famous laws, one of which is the only way of discovering the limits of the possible is to venture a little way past them into the impossible. And that's the origin of my podcast name, Into the Impossible. Accordingly, what advice to a younger David Perel, (laughs) let's say 10, 15 years ago, would you give to give him the courage to go into the impossible?
1: It's so easy. It's what I'm going to spend the next 10 years delivering this message. Share your ideas in public. Share your ideas in public. Share your ideas in public. (laughs) It is, you have been given a gift of a phone in your pocket where you can create media and you can distribute it for free. You are now faced with a tremendous opportunity. And do you have the courage to stick your neck out, to share your ideas, and to then receive all the wonderful serendipity that comes with it. I can just tell you that that's what happens, and you won't believe me until you experience these things experientially and actually feel it firsthand. But sharing ideas online right now is one of the best things that you can do with your life and the aperture of this strategy is so wide no matter what it is that you're interested in you can do it and the returns on doing it for years and years are extremely high intellectually professionally and socially
0: I love the way you put it at one point. You said, increase the surface area for serendipity by writing in exactly. public. And also, as a, I have to commend you because, you know, it's, it's safer to take the you know, middle road and not be too controversial, even, even exposing your ideas too much. It could be, you know, the, a famous Italian saying that, you know, when you're right over the target, you get the most shots taken at you. But I'll end with an aphorism that I love, uh, which is that if you stand in the middle of the road, you get hit by both sides of the traffic. You know, so take a side and uh, be brave and be courageous as David is. Find him at Perel.com, at David underscore Perel on Twitter, where he's got a legion. Uh, I'm just a little bit fearful, but also excited to see what you do with this army of legions, David. Uh, It's so Mm. impressive uh, to meet you. Uh, I will not comment on your age, but I will say keep going. Hatzlacha and blessing to you. And I wish you to as today is Friday. a Shabbat Shalom. And I hope we meet again, David.
1: Shabbat Shalom. I hope so. I'll let you know when I'm in San Diego. I would really, really love to meet and then go tee it up at Torrey Pines next I would
0: love it. One of my sons is (laughs) is like a mini David Perel and he's uh, going to be just like you someday, hopefully. He's the one who carries around a paper notebook so that he can have a second brain as well. Best to you, David. Shabbat Shalom. Bye-bye.
1: Thank you very much. You too. Any sufficiently advanced technology
0: is indistinguishable from magic. Thanks for listening to Into the Impossible with Professor Brian Keating. Please support the show by rating, commenting, sharing, and leaving reviews. We appreciate hearing from you, and it really helps keep our universe expanding. Watch our YouTube channel at Dr. Brian Keating, that's D-R, Brian Keating, and join our premieres Tuesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Follow Brian on Twitter and Medium, and support us on Patreon at Dr. Brian Keating. For exclusive content, visit Brian Keating's website and sign up for his informative newsletter, at briankeating.com. Into the Impossible is produced with the Arthur C. Clark Center for Human Imagination in the Division of Physical Sciences at the University of California, San Diego. Produced by Stuart Valko and Brian Keating.